Well, good morning, everyone. It's really good to be with you. Thank you for coming out this morning. Today, we um, approach the climax of our series uh, called Encounters with Jesus. The series is based on John's Gospel, and today we shall consider the second half of chapter 18 and the first half of chapter 19 together. Now, the series has been designed to appeal mostly to those of you here who are not Christians. So nearly everything I say today will be directed towards those of you who have no Christian faith. Now, do not be alarmed. I promise I won't harangue you or try to manipulate you in any way. All I really want to do this morning is to lead you to the heart of Christianity so that you can form a judgment about it yourself. So the most important thing we shall do in this study is read the Bible together. We will read it slowly so that you can observe Jesus Christ, see how he reacts under extreme pressure, and decide what you think of him. On the screen behind me, you will see how the biblical text is structured. That slide is, of course, a triumph of graphic design. Uh, but like many parts of the Bible, the, the structure is symmetrical. There is a central pivotal moment, and that center is bracketed by outer layers. So let's go right to the center for a moment and read the first seven verses of chapter 19. I have called this section, The Creator Among His Creatures. So let's read it together. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they slapped him in the face. Once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. The man in charge of this terrible scene was a Roman politician called Pontius Pilate. At this stage in world history, the Jewish people in Israel were part of the Roman Empire. Pilate was the governor, and he reported back to his boss, Caesar, in Rome. The Jews were still allowed to have their own rulers, but in terms of hard power, they were little more than a puppet government. They had religious authority, so they enjoyed a lot of prestige in society. But at the end of the day, it was the Romans who really called the shots. Now, the truly strange thing about this scene is that twice the Roman governor declares that there is no basis for a charge against Jesus. I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. He says that in verse 4. He repeats that judgment in verse 6. And yet the Jewish elite shout for Jesus to be crucified. Now remember, this is no drunken mob uh, shouting. We are listening to the most respectable and religious men in the ancient world. And standing silently in the midst of this brutal scene is a man in his early 30s. He has been horribly flogged with a Roman scourge that had sharp bits of metal 
embedded within it. It was not uncommon for people to die from a Roman scourging. And with cruel mockery, the Roman soldiers had made a crown of thorns and driven them into Jesus' head. The man was at their mercy. And so, like cruel children torturing a puppy, they treated him with malice. Any right-minded observer would be outraged at this scene. If the Roman authorities could charge Jesus with no wrongdoing, why all this rage and spite? Well, we are told in verse 7, he must die, they said, because he claimed to be the Son of God. Now, if you've been following this series of studies, that claim will come as no surprise. Jesus Christ was not just a good man who said wise things. He claimed, firstly, that God was tri-personal. Within one being, God exists as three persons called Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus claimed to be God the Son. As John puts it in the first chapter of his gospel, the Word became flesh and dwelled, dwelt among us. This is the central claim of Christianity. God entered his own universe as a man. The Creator walked among his creatures. He chose to experience his consciousness through the fabric of a human personality. It is perhaps the most shocking claim anyone has ever made in history. And by the end of this study, you're going to have to make up your mind what you think about that claim. Our earlier studies revealed Jesus Christ to be kind, patient, a gentleman. He treated women and men with respect. He was sensitive to their needs. And he only ever used his divine power for good, healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, even raising the dead. Now, even if you're suspicious of those miracle claims, we can all agree that they would have helped people who were in real trouble. We also know that even Jesus' enemies could not point to a single incident where Jesus had behaved badly. He never lashed out in anger. He never showed pride. He never acted selfishly. So any right-minded person must shake their heads in bewilderment at this scene. Surely creatures like us would welcome and honor a creator whose character was so admirable. How do we end up with this bleeding figure surrounded by a jeering mob who wanted him dead? Well, to explain that mystery, we need to go back to chapter 18. And you'll see from the structure on the screen, the central moment that we've just examined is bracketed by two interviews two conversations between Jesus and the Roman governor, Pilate. And those two interviews are themselves bracketed by conversations between Pilate and the Jewish authorities. So let's now go back to the first uh, part of the structure and read chapter 18, verses 28 to 32 together. John chapter 18, verse 28. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning. And to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. 
Because Israel was part of the Roman Empire, the Jewish leaders only had religious power. They had their religious courts, of course, but only the Romans could sentence someone to death. The Jewish elite hated and despised the Romans. They saw the Romans as Gentile barbarians, unclean thugs who used brute military power to oppress their beautiful culture. You probably noticed in verse 28 that even to enter a Roman building would have made them ceremonially unclean. Now, that split between secular and religious power is a pattern repeated throughout all history. Pilate and the Romans represent raw political and military power, but the Jewish elite represent cultural and religious power. It's the sort of power that comes from ideas. Examine any society today, and you will find both sorts of power. There is the hard power held by armies and politicians, and there is the soft power held by cultural leaders who use ideas to control people. Just think of the power of Islamic ideas uh, over billions of people in the world today, or the power of ideologies like Marxism. So this scene that we've just read represents the mix of hard and soft power that has governed every society since the dawn of time. And the real problem with power is that it can be abused. There are many voices in our society, particularly on the left of politics, who claim that every wrong can be explained as an abuse of power. Every wrong. Think of ideologies such as critical theory, which defines society as marginalized groups like women and black people and the LGBT community who are oppressed by powerful Western white men. I wonder what you think of that. There's obviously some truth in it, but I wonder what you think of it. Does the whole human condition boil down to power? Is the human story nothing more than an endless struggle for power? A history of the oppressed rising up against the oppressor? Well, at first sight, the trial and execution of Jesus looks like a prime example of critical theory in history. Jesus is the victim of institutional power. Hard and soft power combined to crush any potential threat to its hegemony. Pontius Pilate probably believed something like that. He was a man of the world, a cynical politician who knew that power made the world go round. But let's now read the record of his first interview with Jesus in verses 33 to 40. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. 
is obvious from Pilate's first question, that he sees life through the lens of power. I think he despised the Jewish elite. He could see through all their ceremonies, their fine-sounding words, and knew that deep down they were every bit as political as he was. So he instinctively concluded that Jesus Christ must be setting himself up as a new political power within the Jewish system. Are you the king of the Jews, he asks. The Lord Jesus' reply is full of gentle irony. Is that your own idea, he asks, knowing full well that Pilate was not given to original thinking. His political mind ran along predictable tram lines. And Pilate counters using a tactic employed by many secular people today. I'm not part of your religious system, he scoffs. It's your lot who want you dead. Tell me what you have done. I have lost count of the number of times I have read this text. But it still amazes me. In the midst of all this hatred and scorn, the sheer shabbiness of politics dressed up as religion, we hear Jesus' voice of calm reason. Astonishingly, the prisoner in the dock is trying to help Pilate, to teach him something new about the nature of reality. The creator may be in chains, but he is trying to open his creature's eyes. He talks of a kingdom that is not based on power. My kingdom is not of this world, he says gently, otherwise my servants would fight. Now, the senior Roman commander, the Kiliach, who had arrested Jesus, would have already told Pilate how Jesus had forbidden his followers from taking up their swords. So Pilate's brain tries to process this radical idea. You are a king then, he asks. But he's uncertain what sort of a king could rule without an army behind him. The thing made no sense. Surely there was nothing to life but power. And now as we approach the climax of the entire gospel, Jesus introduces Pilate to the concept of truth. The reason I was born, he says, and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Now if you're not a Christian, I hope you can sense just how radical this moment is. The creator enters his own universe and allows his creatures to put him on trial, literally. By, by definition, no one could have had more power than the creator. He could cause all reality to implode in a flash if he so chose. But he chooses not to terrify us or to overpower us. He stands in the dock of a human court as truth incarnate. And by that phrase I mean that he comes to us as the source of all that is ultimately real and valuable. He is showing us that reality isn't just an endless power play, a never-ending game of thrones. That which is ultimately real is personal and relational. Creation is founded on concepts like love and justice and kindness and patience. If you've ever held a newborn baby in your arms, you will have sensed that there are more precious things in life than power. But where does that sense come from? We seem to have been designed to appreciate moral beauty, to value goodness. But moral beauty is a mere fiction unless it has a source. That is what Jesus means when he calls himself the way, the truth, and the life. 
He's saying he is the source of all that is ultimately real and valuable. He came to build a kingdom of citizens who value what he values. A kingdom full of people whose hearts have been won by his moral beauty. So they accept his rule not because he has raw power, but because he has inspired their loyalty. That's why he tells Pilate, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Now Pilate's worldview is starting to collapse around him. What is truth? He asks. That haunting question could serve as an epitaph for our own culture. We live in a society that has discarded the concept of truth. Children are taught in schools that truth is nothing more than their inner convictions. We can each have our own truth because truth is just a conviction that arises from my own heart. Now, my non-Christian friend, do you really believe that? Because if you do, all of reality reduces to power. Of course we can tell ourselves stories that promise us meaning, but they're just fictions that emerge from our imagination. In the real world of atoms and politics, there is only power. The contrast between the two men in this conversation becomes ever more clear. The prisoner is calm. He exudes a quiet, infinite strength. Pilate, although he seems to be in control, starts to show his weakness. I think he wants to save Jesus from execution. So first he tries to ambush the Jewish elite by offering them a choice between Jesus and a political insurrectionist called Barabbas. But he underestimated the sheer hatred of the Jewish rulers. They chose to free a terrorist rather than Jesus. Just think about that. The consequences of that decision may quite possibly have led to the rebellion against the Romans in AD 70 when Rome's armies destroyed Jerusalem completely. If I'm interpreting the text correctly, Pilate then has Jesus flogged in the hope that such a terrible punishment would slake the Pharisees' bloodlust. But when they see Christ with blood and spittle streaming down his face, when they see the thorns riven into his scalp, they bay like dogs as they rip apart a hair. Crucify him, they yell. Now remember, these were the most respectable men in society. They wore long, flowing robes. The common people had to bow as they passed by. But the sheer evil of the religious heart is now exposed. See, these men weren't like Pilate. Pilate didn't have a religious bone in his body. But these respectable men were supposed to be the guardians of truth. Earlier on in John's Gospel, they had declared themselves to be children of Abraham, to be disciples of Moses. So their job was to keep alive the orthodox Jewish hope of a Messiah who would come to save the world. But they had twisted and perverted their religion and had turned it into an instrument of cultural power. It's the oldest trick in the book. Use religious ideas to gain power over other people. And so when the Messiah did in fact turn up, they saw him as a threat to their power and prestige. In the words of one of the Lord's parables about them, they said, we will not have this man rule over us. Their chief priest, a man called Caiaphas, had argued that it was expedient that one man die in order to preserve their social order. Expedient. That is the language of a mafiosi. So behind all their impressive rituals and their fine words, there was nothing but pragmatism. 
the religious system they had built was a false thing. Let's now read the record of Pilate's second interview with Jesus. This is chapter 19, verses 7 to 12. Uh, We're just reading 7 for context. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from, he asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. I consider this passage to be the climax of John's big argument in his gospel. In the first interview, Pilate encountered truth. But in this second interview, Pilate finds himself judged by truth. You see, the Roman is still clinging to his old worldview. Don't you realize that I have power over you? He asks Christ. And the next verse is electrifying. We hear Jesus calmly issue a judgment on Pilate's actions. The one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin, he says. It is an astonishing scene. Pilate is in the position of governor and judge. In the dock is a brutally beaten, bleeding prisoner. And yet it is the prisoner who is the real judge. In the confrontation between truth and political power, it is truth that has lasting authority. And suddenly we stop being mere observers of this scene. I said at the start of this study, that you will be forced to make a judgment on Jesus Christ. And let me now explain why you cannot merely observe Christ as an uninterested party. It is a characteristic of truth that when we know something to be true, we are expected to believe it. I'm just going to repeat that sentence. It is a characteristic of truth that when we know something to be true, We are expected to believe it. So when we stand face to face with truth and consider what we are going to do with it, it is not the truth that is on trial. It is we ourselves who are being judged by the truth. What will you do with Jesus Christ? He stands quietly before you. He seeks not to terrorize you with divine power. Instead, with my majestic humility he allows you to put him on trial but the very nature of truth demands that we either accept it or reject it no one can be morally neutral on truth and so it turns out that the court scene gets reversed it is the divine prisoner who judges us so let's finish by examining the horrific consequences of rejecting truth Our final reading is chapter 19, verses 12 through 16. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. 
When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed it over to them to be crucified. At the start of this story, Pilate seems to be in control. He seems to have all the power. But his weakness is gradually exposed. The Jewish leaders blackmail him by reminding him that his power is actually devolved from Caesar. Pilate was a bully, but the problem with being a bully is that one day you run into a bigger bully. And these Jewish sneaks had threatened to write a letter to the biggest bully of them all, the Caesar in Rome, accusing Pilate of permitting insurrection. So Pilate knows that he has been beaten at his own game. All he had was power, and now he is powerless. He tries to hide his weakness by using all the pomp and ceremony of the Roman judicial system. He sits down in this great stone throne known as the Gabbatha, but he knows full well that he's been reduced to a mere puppet. So by refusing to stand for truth, by refusing to stand up against the Jewish elite, Pilate loses the very thing that he valued most in life, power. And what about the Jewish rulers? I can hardly find the words to describe their fall. Remember, these men prided themselves on being the guardians of the Jewish faith. Think of the promises God gave to Abraham about the special role he would give the nation. Recall the great covenant God makes with King David or that wonderful utopian global vision painted by the prophet Isaiah. They were called to lead a nation that would be a light to the Gentiles. And now, the sheer perversity of their hatred of Christ leads them to say those terrible words, we have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. That single phrase jettisoned their entire religious heritage. Everything that made them special, that gave them purpose and dignity in life, the whole system just thrown away, exchanged for the pleasure of seeing an innocent young man done to death. Their false religious system had been exposed as a false and a shabby thing, a mere edifice that supported their pride and desire for prestige. Just like Pilate, the thing they valued most was exposed to be a sham. Pilate idolized power. But by rejecting truth, his idol got exposed as a false and flimsy thing. The Jewish elite idolized their religious system. It was an ecosystem designed to feed and nourish their pride. But by rejecting the truth, their religious idol was exposed as a false and shabby thing. Now, that is a hard lesson for you and me today. No one gets to observe this scene. The creator allows us to put him on trial. He stands there like a prisoner, revealing himself to be the source of all that is ultimately real and valuable. He stands as the truth. But remember, truth by its nature always elicits a response. 
we must either accept it or reject it. The truth, as Pilate and the Jews discovered, ends up judging us. Human nature never changes. You're no different from Pontius Pilate or the Jewish elite. If you reject the truth of the gospel, it will be because you idolize power or prestige or money or sex. You desire, your desire to protect your idol might tempt you to run away. But you can never leave an encounter with truth unchanged. Over time, maybe over decades, you will discover that your little idols have been smashed by that encounter with truth. No matter how closely you hug them to yourself, you'll learn that you've placed all the freight of your life in something that is shabby and flimsy and false. But there is a better way. You can stand quietly where Pilate stood, in front of that dignified, blood-stained man, and realize with a sense of awe and wonder that you're standing before your Creator, a Creator who has the humility and love to allow you to judge Him, to test whether or not He is worthy of your love and devotion. And then you can turn from the horrible values of this world, a world driven by power and pride, and kneel before Jesus Christ and say in the words of Thomas, my Lord and my God. And in that moment, you will discover the source of all that is good and beautiful and true in life. You can enter into a kingdom governed by someone who will inspire your loyalty and gratitude forever and ever. Next week, we shall arrive at the climax of the great story when we consider the cross of Christ. But for now, we're done. We'll sing a final hymn, and then I will close in prayer.